Section two of the Diary of a Dead Officer by Arthur Graham West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two. Diary. Drill. Leave. More drill. Lecture on discipline. Discipline. Hospital. The others. Depression. Army instructors. Sweating the waiters. A lecture on maps. Meals. The company sergeant major. The book of sin. More sin. Parade. Ethical creed. The Glasgow art gallery. The North Sea affair. A special lecture. The case of N. Carrying coal. Going sick. Orders. Some remarks about hospitals. Towards the end of March 1916, West came home and was sent to train in Scotland with a view to taking a commission. Part 2 describes his experiences during training. Drill. Wednesday, April 19th, 1916. Drill. When we first came, we had done a 140 to the minute step, but this slacked off. Until today the instructors were called before the adjutant and told to insist on it. We marched up and down at this rate, saluting most of the early morning. Before Brecker, the company sergeant major made another speech. That we had better work with him, it would be better for us to help him, and then he could help us. This hundred and forty was to be kept to, BEF men as well. He knew we had been out there where conditions were entirely different, but we must now pull ourselves together. As regards saluting with the rifle, there had been some dispute about it. He had told us to make no noise on it, but Captain R. had decided a noise was to be made, though where he had been for the last eighteen months the custom had been different. He saw a man smiling there among the BEF men, a lance-corporal, too. Perhaps he thought himself very knowing. Let him come and take over his job and see if he would laugh then. Let the company get the name of a smart company. The squad he himself had been taking that morning had got praised. He hadn't taken the BEF men recently, and didn't know what they were like. Let them now dismiss saluting smartly as if an officer were on parade. At Brecker we agreed that we would commit suicide if it went on, that C was middle-aged, being thirty-one, that happiness was never attainable, questioned. Easter Monday, April 24th, 1916 there were to be no parades today. During the morning, however, we were routed out of the reading room to put half bricks round the front of all the huts in our line. There were ten huts. Leave. Wednesday, April 26th, 1916. We are kept in suspense about our leave. Meanwhile, all of us are saving thirty-five shillings for supposed fares to London, which we might otherwise spend, and are going very short. Parade before Brecker by six new sergeants, who were tested on us by the company sergeant-major. We were kept at it an hour by these men at a great pace, with no more than two minutes easy. Rifle exercises, as usual, in the morning. We were granted leave at twenty minutes' notice from Wednesday till Monday morning. Many of us had not enough money to do it, never having had notice to save money for leave. We were first told that we need not go on afternoon parade, and then were put on it for one and a half hours. More drill. Wednesday, May 5th, 1916. As usual. Platoon drill under a man who didn't know the difference between column and line. A sergeant who by his own confession had never handled a short rifle was put on to instruct us in musketry. We had a lecture on behaviour, i.e. not to go into pubs. This could be done in France, 
where officers and men were not sharply distinguished. We were not to go about with obvious tarts, nor get drunk. We could, however, do all these things if we would get into mufti. The usual assumption that all civilians somehow fall short of gentility. In the evening we were put to scrub out huts for D Company and arrange the beds. Nothing of the sort was done for us when we came. Some of the A Company sergeants made a protest about our having too much dirty work and no time for reading. More musketry from the same sergeant, who knew neither the right orders nor drill-book method of instructions. Asked by Captain R. if he had given us a target, he said, Yes, the field in front. This fined itself down to a telegraph post that he had never really given us at all. Lecture on Discipline Friday, May 12th, 1916 A lecture by C.O., an Englishman, rather Episcopalian, a dull and studiously and coolly brutal man. Usual lines. Discipline consists of little things. Present standard of officers considered too low. We should be the first products of the new methods. We would be faced with a very difficult problem when commissioned. Being ourselves junior officers, we should be expected to combat the slackness we should be sure to find there. All over England the lack of discipline was spreading. Men were not saluting properly. Things were going to the dogs. Discipline was a habit, a habit of the mind, not to be picked up as territorials tried to on Saturday afternoons. The Germans, though we sneered at them at the time, were now proved to have perfected the system of training men in a short time. We must copy the Prussian method. That was what we were to expect for ourselves and to enforce on our men. He proceeded to draw contrasts between the undisciplined Anzacs and the 29th Division at the Dardanelles. What we must aim at was, as he had said, the discipline of the Germans. They had got men to go again and again to the attack without wavering. That must be our ideal. Usual claptrap about behaviour now we wore the white band round our hats. They would watch us here in camp, but not on leave or at home. We must behave there as we would in camp. He impressed on us the shortness of our time and the necessity for hard work on parade and in our leisure. It must be said of us when we got to our battalions, This is a smart officer. He knows his job. That is what they would try and teach us. Practice in sloping arms during the afternoon and cleaning out huts. Handles of mops to be scoured white. A Company beat us in no way so much as in the polish of their stove-backs. Orders came at noon that buttons were to be cleaned before each parade. Discipline Saturday, May 13th, 1916 Early morning parade occurred with saluting with canes for an hour. Various new stunts introduced. Speech by Company Sergeant Major to the effect that if our kits, caps and huts were not clean and correct, we needn't think we would go on leave, because we wouldn't. We would stay and clean them. Rifle inspection. Several men were had up for moving on parade, among them C, for scratching his chin. They were brought up before Captain R, who asked if they had any excuse. They hadn't and he told them about discipline, about disciplined troops always beating undisciplined, of how the new officers were all found totally unable to stand still on parade, how if they had been guardsmen they would be made to stand before a clock for an hour, that they had to stand still without moving an eyelash, and were cursed for moving their eyes.
the CO inspected us in the huts with about ten people oozing after him, cursed a few men for long hair or hat-band not properly white, no more said. Afterwards CSM had us all on parade, said men were not to be on CO's parade again with dirty boots, that overcoat buttons were to be clean, and all clean in respect of kit and equipment. Then he went on with a long rigmarole about men from territorial force units, and some formal filling up of papers. This lasted twenty minutes, during which time he had us at attention or at ease the whole time, never easy. Finally he did nothing with the BEF men at all, and we need really never have been brought out there. The CO today ordered all the spittoons to be removed from the canteen because of the look they gave to the place. The canteen man had paid eighteen shillings for them. We learnt about now that the battalion being full, the course would now start in earnest, and we might look forward to another four months. We might really have been away all the time. Hospital, Monday, May 15th, 1916 S. came back from hospital and reported cold food served after our dinner was over. Also, when he was admitted to hospital, he had to lie on the floor for the morning and afternoon, though many beds were vacant, because it was not known whether he had officially been admitted or not. We laid turf all the early morning parade. The Others Saturday, May 20th, 1916 Depression is merely a passing mood with the most of men, and comes rarely even so. The men with me felt indignant when told to go on a parade they didn't like, and for a moment after coming off it retained their resentment. But it soon passed off, and depression of spirits from general greyness of outlook as an enduring attitude was unknown to them. The prospect of four days' leave made them all delirious, so did weekends, or even the Wednesday half-holiday. In the evening, when work was done, the gramophone, golf, girls, a meal at a hotel, a magazine story, a piano, made them forget that they had ever had a complaint in the world, or that tomorrow would begin, as usual, with an adjutant's parade at five-thirty. C's disgust was more demonstrative than E's, and it amused them immensely. It was quite real, but they thought his humour was exercised for its own sake. They never came near to understanding E's nature. As before, nobody could make out C, thought he was writing an incredibly extended diary when he made his notes, but loved him for his oddity and wit. So they failed over E, who didn't even amuse them by being quaint or publicly witty, for he was rarely this. They are utterly commonplace people here, most of them, noisy, too, with the conventional desires and lusts. They go to church, a lot of them, on Sundays, partly, I think, because they like the service out of religious sentimentality, partly out of custom, partly to feel themselves a part of normal civilization again, partly to get off with a choir girl. Depression, Friday, May 12th, 1916 A fearful sense of the grimness of things came over me last night which it would have been hard to express in words even then, and of which it is hard now to recapture even the details. I had a fearful cold that grew worse and worse, and I expected that by the morning, having done guard from eleven to one, I might be really ill. E had just come in and told me C was bad. He himself didn't look well. I knew how many of us did not feel fit here. This, combined with the stupidity of parading us for platoon drill or even physical drill in the wind and wet, we were sometimes kept an hour drilling in the pouring rain, 
and the ever-increasing viciousness and malice of the adjutant and CSM towards us seemed to keep an almost personal fiend of terror hovering above our heads. The war and the army had never looked so grim. The army is really the most antisocial body imaginable. It maintains itself on the selfishness and hostility of nations, and in its own ranks holds together by a bond of fear and suspicion, all antisocial feeling. Men are taught to fear their superiors, and they suspect the men. Hatred must be often present, and only fear prevents it flaming out. My feeling of impotent horror, as of a creature caught by the proprietors of some travelling circus and forced with formal brutality to go through meaningless tricks, was immensely sharpened by a charcoal drawing of C's called We Want More Men, showing death with the English staff cap on and a ragged tunic, standing with a jagged sickle among a pile of bleeding, writhing bodies and smoking corpses. A huge, gaunt figure that haunted me horribly. Army Instructors Thursday, May 18th, 1916 A hot day. We did fire control all the time under the adjutant, brigade officer, etc. One noted first their utter inability to teach us anything because there were too many superannuated old martinets trying to do it at the same time. Secondly, the lack of doctrine among them all. Even if they could have taught, they knew nothing. The way we were taught musketry was laughable. The whole company was kept in close order, echeloned in half companies at twenty paces, and moved up and down the field, first in single rank, then in ordinary close formation, finally halted in echelon, and given fire orders by the platoon commander and sectional commanders, with front rank kneeling, rear rank standing. The CO, meanwhile, stood in the background for a long time, checking people in a peevish, ineffectual way for minor irrelevancies. It was always the same thing with us. We had three men shouting at us at once when we were on parade, each one eager to outshine the others in his keenness in detecting faults and the strength and accuracy of his denunciation of the offender. It was always impossible to please them all and when one had you alone, he was sure to scold you for methods on which the others had been fondly insistent. Our instructors and even our officers were not above confessing that they didn't know the drill which they were supposed to be there to teach us. Sweating the Waiters Monday, May 22nd, 1916 about this time, men were beginning to go up and ask to be sent back to their units. We were told when we came here that those who wished to return might do so, but this was now refused. Men had to go on with the course. We came off guard this morning and were put on a fatigue at once by the CSM to move bedding, etc., from a neighbouring hut. At eleven, we had a lecture from a tired, bored young man who leant up against the wall and read in a low, weary, indistinct voice straight out of field engineering, too fast for us to take anything down even if we wished to, not even trying to conceal the fact that none of his remarks were original. He chose, too, paragraphs of vague generalities or technical details about numbers of picks and shovels and the amount of cubic feet a man should excavate. The waiters who attend us at meals are at work every day, including Sundays, from 5.30 till 8.30, on their feet the whole time, one waiter to a table of twelve men, and early morning tea and biscuits, brekker, dinner, tea, often with some meat, and supper. They get only the usual shilling per diem. 
one is glad to see they have struck for shorter hours and less work. It was said today by one of the Scotch corporals, a man who had made a singularly inefficient orderly sergeant, that the duties of orderly sergeant and orderly corporal must be explained to the ex-men, but needn't be explained to the Scotchmen, as they knew all about it. A Lecture on Maps Tuesday, May 23rd, 1916 Adjutant's morning parade was very cold. We did sizing drill and dressing all the hour. Utterly useless. CSM was standing about and saying he had seen recruits with two days' training do it better than we did. Lecture by S. on Maps A sand model had been erected on a table by this person, which occupied him an hour in the morning. He had put tapes and flags on it to signify contours and heights, and explained the features at enormous length. Of course, we all knew them and realised it was all eyewash. He showed that he didn't know the difference between concave and convex, and bungled away for twenty minutes before a blackboard on which he had drawn an abominably bad map. Meals undated. Communication drill in the afternoon, bawling across to one another in the old absurd way. Alteration in meals. The food both degenerates and diminishes. Meat baked to a dry cinder, and not enough of it, comes on at lunch. Pudding of any sort seems to be knocked off entirely. Cheese, jam, etc. are not provided at all as they used to be. Tea today at 4.30 consisted simply of a few cakes and tea. We shall see what supper is. The food as it is now would not be so bad were it not that we were led to expect something very different from our first weeks here. I suspect it has worked out as follows. The allowance for our food is very generous, and it must have been pretty well spent out at first. Obviously it would be better if our food should be reduced to the ordinary army minimum and the surplus should go elsewhere. A convenient way of doing this presented itself when the staff of waiters sent in a complaint that their work was too heavy and they got no leisure. We were told that on their account we were to have supper and tea knocked together at six. We all agreed to this. It does not look as if it would be done. For this modified tea and supper does not relieve the waiters at all, and the CO told them when a deputation was sent up to him that it was all nonsense to expect leisure nowadays. They must go on working the usual hours. Thus they keep the staff in their places, manage to reduce the expense of feeding us, and gain the money for themselves under the pretense of lessening the waiters' work and neither we nor the staff reap any profit. The CSM asked us to pick up the loose stones about the lines. He said with his vulpine grin that he would ask us. He would not order out a fatigue for it. After tea, the whole company was ordered out to do the job. Supper tonight consisted of jugs of water, no hot cocoa as before, bread, butter, jam, and some tinned fish in a plate. No waiters were about at all. The Company Sergeant Major Wednesday, May 24th, 1916 CSM horribly prolix today. After adjutant's parade, we heard A Company being dismissed, and we were kept on to have orders read to us, and to have a speech thrown in. That we were very slack in turning out of the uts. When he blew his whistle down the lines, he saw men standing with their heads round the door of the uts. Then, when we were called for by him, we must come at once, quick time, preferably double. Men went along now at slow time. We never saw him come up to an officer in slow time. He went at the double. 
and what was good enough for him was good enough for us. Several men were had up for laughing and talking during this speech, including G, for about the tenth time, as CSM only knows his name. By the new regulations, the net is drawn closer. South Beach Hotel in T is now out of bounds. The CO lives there and finds us troublesome, we think. At the same time, we have been forbidden to drink at pubs. The only other hotel in T is a temperance one, and hence we cannot have any drinks there at all. Liberty of wearing private kit, even away from camp, is taken from us. This was allowed even in the M Regiment. We went a route march this morning and got back very late. More degeneration of food, measly, tasteless apples. The Book of Sin, Thursday, May 25th, 1916 Morning parade prefaced by a dispute between C and the CSM, because the bugler had sounded all the calls very late, and the CSM first objected to our turning out without regard to the bugle, and then cursed us for not being ready. CSM sneered and kept saying, "'Be a soldier-like thing to do to show up the bugler. Very soldier-like, wouldn't it? Very soldier-like thing to do.' The morning parade itself was the most comic we have ever had, if it were not all so pitiable. We abandoned yesterday's marching on markers by platoons, which was some faint use for battalion ceremonial. CSM tried to explain, in a muddle of words that would have perplexed Wisdom herself, the ways of throwing out markers. Then the adjutant came up and amended and contradicted his explanation and the CSM, who understood not a tittle of it all, stood in the rear, clutching nervously at his stick, pawing at his more salient features, and ticking us all off for absurd little faults, merely to show he was awake. We moved vaguely about on lines of markers, were dressed and redressed by left, right, and centre, first by one, then by another, and then by a third. The authorities rushed roaming and heated up and down the ranks, pushing and thrusting men about, bawling and gesticulating like three peevish little boys playing with lead soldiers and all wanting to do something different with them. Long lists of positions and regulations for battalion ceremonial and company ceremonial drill were reeled off at us in angry, vulgar scotch by the adjutant and we were expected to comprehend all at once. The CSM was most awful today in his speeches. He had the sick up before him at eleven o'clock, and told several of them off for malingering, and then laid down the rule that all sick men were to parade before every company parade. The afternoon is black with sin. Before parade, the CSM and an officer, D, came round every platoon, examining the hair and telling men off all round. No camp barber is supplied, or if he is, is never there. Many names were taken. Then we marched off and were taken by the adjutant in ceremonial drill. This was like the morning, only worse. A roaring wind made it impossible to hear any commands and what use it is all meant to be, God only knows. The CO hung about dubiously round the edges of the company, looking at his feet and striking attitudes with his stick, finally slouching off without a word. Then some of us fired five rounds at the minute to range. Before we went there we were closed up for a speech in the lines by the CSM. It was admonitory, confidential, and anecdotal. Some of you men have been to the front, and you've got a bit heavy. Very heavy you've got, some of you. Well, you've been here seven or eight weeks now, and you ought to begin to shape a bit. You've had lots of warning. I had no warning when I joined the service. 
I recollect when I didn't turn my head and eyes, the colour sergeant, he comes up to me and taps me on the shoulder and says, Your name? And next I knew was I had four hours pack drill. Four hours I had straight off the reel. Then, about this air cut. I remember in my squad when I was in the service, a lad came on with long hair and the officer told him off to have his hair cut. He came on the afternoon parade with his hair not cut. He was brought up and had seven days' cells. Seven days' cells, he had. I knows you, some of you. You take on sullen. You take and cut about coming on parade early. Well, I say to them men, come and fall in a company a hundred and fifty strong yourself and march it down to Hadjutant's Parade. Inspect it, and march down to Hadjutant's Parade all in a quarter of an hour. We know the men that comes out sullen. That means to get through with as little work as they can, that are here to have a good time in their certain limitations. He then passed on to strictures on boots, hair, buttons, and equipment that we should be had up before the C.O. for the next offence, and should find ourselves back with our units. If we wanted to go back, we should say so. They would send us back. They didn't want the trouble of training us. It was our own fault if we didn't all go away with commissions. We must all fall into line, speaking to us as a man to men. We all shuddered at that. He said that we ought to do this, we ought to do our best. Noticeable through this, as through all speeches and exhortations that were ever made to us, was the insistence that we should do our best, and no hint of a fulfilment of the contract towards us. Three officers, we hear, were listening to the CSM's speech and laughing at it. In the evening, C. was sent for by C.S.M. and was with him for over an hour. It turned out that C.S.M., who is called W., is a man I had met. At Oxford he was a clerk in the P.O., and J. and I had some correspondence and an interview with him over some social meeting. He was, in his letters and speech, just such a prolix, vain weakling as he is now, and I can recall his leering squint round the door, his curled-back lips, glistening, possibly false teeth, and his eyes so narrow and slit-like that they seemed almost deformed. In the interview with C, it came out that CSM was ground down by the officers, bullied by the sergeants. Look at my hat, he said to C. You may not believe it, but it's the only one of the sort in the mess. He hates the officers, of whom it now appears that the adjutant has never been at the front, and even our major at the beginning was only a terrier. He sees the absurdity of the training, expected, as we did, to be put at Oxford, has a wife and children very badly off, the sergeant's mess get no messing allowance and have to keep it up out of their own pay. He said it was the CO who cut down our food, having been assured by the doctor that we were eating too much and going sick because of it. The waiter's evil condition he corroborated. Many were back wounded from France and got only one pass in nine weeks. They could get no redress from the CO. On the score that we, when we became officers, would be able to lead a slack life, he urged us to become fit for commissions. On all hands, this consideration is urged on us for taking commissions. C. put to him the old fact that bullying would do no good with men like us. It simply made us bored and indifferent, and we would not do even the work that we could do well more sin. Friday, May 26th, 1916. Company drill in the morning under the CSM. It was very cold and we were kept standing still. 
Then the adjutant came and cursed us for bad arm drill. We had hands so cold we couldn't do it. The CSM made a speech in our lines after this parade. We must do better arm drill. We had a bad name already and didn't want to get a badder. He also gave out that the adjutant had told him to let us know that the CO had been complaining again about our unsteadiness on parade, and would, if any man were brought up to him, send him back to his unit. N.B. It appears from C.'s last night's interview that several of us are already on the blacklist and will not be sent back to our unit, but to the X depot, whence we may go to any battalion. It is noteworthy that the CO has originated no order or sentiment other than these little trivialities. The higher commands are all reducible to this, as far as concerns the men. They all have their little fads, which become practically the whole of their individuality. One is hot on buttons, another on steadiness in the ranks, another on saluting, another on blankets, another on stove-tops, etc. Again a sinful afternoon. The CSM had us out half an hour before parade, then ceremonial, the adjutant yapping about here, there and everywhere, hut scrubbing, whitewashing of stones, scrubbing of bedboards and broom-handles. Preparation hour from five to six made a washout in order to have us handy for the CSM's fatigues. They always knock off this hour if one has to go on fatigues, and then expect us to find time and quiet to read up and answer questions. The men made a complaint today at being marched in solemnly in fours to take a cup of tea and two buns. The officer said he would lodge the complaint. I learnt that many men with bad teeth were being detained at their work in camp, whatever their sufferings, until the doctor had gathered together a whole platoon to attend the dentist. Parade, Saturday, May 27th, 1916 this morning we had saluting drill for half an hour. It was the most pitiably comic parade I have ever seen, even here. First we were drilled in platoons. Our official way of carrying the stick was outlined, and a special drill by numbers drawn up for tucking the stick under the arm, taking it into the hand again, and cocking it up in the air. We practised in two movements. One, put the stick under left arm. Two, cut the right hand away. Then, one, seize stick on the underside. Two, bring it smartly down to the side. We were then marched up and down the road, saluting by numbers imaginary officers, thus. One, stick under arm. Two, hand away. One, two, three, four, five, put hand up, six, hand down. One, hand up to stick again, two, hand and stick away. We did this for a quarter of an hour, yelling out the numbers. On all hands were other platoons rushing about in the same way. After this, when it had been impressed on us how hot the CO was on saluting and looking officers straight in the eyes, like a soldier as man to man, not gazing into distant regions, we were formed up, both companies A and B, in fours. Then about twenty men were put out in a wide circle with a diameter of about two hundred yards, and the whole two companies were marched round this circle. Each four went off separately at intervals of a few paces, saluting the twenty men on the circumference of the circle as they came to each of them. There were about seventy lots of fours going round like this, the adjutant, the CSM and A and B company CSMs standing about in the middle of the circle like circus managers. For a quarter of an hour the procession went ceaselessly round, each four making the tour three times, and then we were closed and marched in home. Physical drill came immediately after Brecker, 
and violent running, jumping, and abdominal exercises. The day was very hot. There were two mildly revolutionary drawings of C's in the hut for C.O.'s inspection today, a bloated general on inspection, and a satirical cartoon of a man in the 10th Battalion in a motley dress, half man, half officer, fettered by red tape and chains, and stamped with broad arrows. The CSM formed us up for a speech this morning, as usual, and read a letter to us from the CO, not addressed to us, but concerning us. It desired that the cadets be informed that very little improvement in steadiness in the ranks had been noticed, that men talked and moved on parade, that a system of punishment was being devised to meet the case, and deprivation of all weekends would be the probable punishment. Every cadet found guilty of this offence would be personally interviewed by the CO and dealt with according to his offence. Then he went on to say he dared say that many of us detested the army and had been doing so since the first day the war started. He assured us that he did the same thing but yet would do everything he was told and perform any duty however disagreeable. We must all do our best and fall into line. Ethical Creed Undated I believe that I am getting more perfectly to the state of stoicism to which I aspire. I do really care less than I used to do for the fools and bullies in command of me. They certainly do not frighten me at all as they used to. I don't care a jot for the adjutant or the CO when they come and yap or make heavy speeches at me. I do not mind if I am ticked off on parade, and I don't think I should be at all shamed if I were finally turned down altogether. And they do not bore me as much as they do some people like C. I can throw off the mask of attention that I put on my mind perforce on parade as soon as I come off it. C bears it very badly but I am approaching more nearly to ease state of mind, I think. I mean a state of nihilism rather than of stoicism. For stoicism's fundamental assumption was the positive one that only the good is good, and for that we should live, whereas I sometimes think rather that nothing is good or has any permanent value whatever. I noted it down some weeks ago that pessimism, by which I must practically have meant nihilism, was all very well as a pose, but paralysed action for good or effort towards happiness. But now I see the great attractiveness and mournful pleasure of the creed that nothing is. Moods of this kind have overcome me utterly some days lately and I have understood the feelings of poets when they have written of the vanity of things and the nothingness of all earthly importances. One is apt to let such utterances go by as merely conventional, beautiful expressions of a sentiment to which people gladly accede in verse, but which they do not really credit for a moment in daily thought and action and would think a man mad for carrying such beliefs into practical existence. Perhaps such poems are often shallow, the outcome of some personal disappointment when a man, robbed of his dearest wish, unjustly conceives that all wishes, both his own and other people's, are necessarily vain and foredoomed to see no fruition. And yet many men must have felt this in the general, impersonal sense, while life and hope remained to them, and they still took keen pleasure in the play of thought and feeling. I have realised this for myself, the absolute non-entity of everything that men hold precious. Even the decision of this war is nothing. What does England matter? or whether she wins or not. Any man of sense must subscribe with all his mind and soul to the cry of Ecclesiastes. 
when he goes to the British Museum and sees the meaningless, lost-looking thoats and Ramesses, sphinxes and mummies, he must feel that they are now nothing. When he thinks of the wars whose voice has come ever so faintly down to us from those ages, and of all the men and women of those times, he must understand that all existence from the earliest Egyptian dynasties and eons before them to the present day, and on and on into the future, is without meaning, of no absolute or continuous importance. Mankind is perpetually puffing itself up with strange unearthly loyalties and promised rewards. Man goes out to fight for a delusion, to defend what he has tricked up as his fatherland. He imposes all sorts of restraints and tortures on himself in the name of virtue and respectability, sets a fool above him to worship, crawl on his knees to, and shed a blessing of purposefulness on his most frightful sufferings. There is only one thing real amidst all this decorative garbage, and that is the feeling of pain or pleasure together with thought. To bring happiness into the world is the only aim of action. Action undertaken for any other motive is wasted. We may seek the happiness of ourselves and of others. The existence of happiness and pain, with certain means of attaining them, is the fundamental reality on which I would now base any scheme of life I were to construct. It is true that I get happiness from being with my friends, from reading and writing, therefore I do it and can justify myself in doing it. It is true that I bring happiness to my parents by doing and suffering things which, while they do me no harm, please them. But all other creations that are supposed to have a claim on my time and life, I spurn. I spurn the idea that I am naturally enthusiastic for the success of my hut, or platoon, or company, or battalion. That I am necessarily fonder of my own country than any other. And most of all, now, I reject the presumption that I worship a god by whose never-wronging hand I conceive all the present woe to have been brought upon the now-living generation of mankind. If there is a God at all responsible for governing the earth, I hate and abominate him. I rather despise him. But I do not think there is one. We only fall into the habit of calling down curses on a god whom we believe not to exist, because the constant references to his beneficence are so maddening that anger stings us to a retort that is really illogical. The Glasgow Art Gallery, Sunday, May 28th, 1916 I went to the Glasgow Art Gallery in the warm, glowing afternoon with C and T. Many pictures had been removed for safety, such as Whistler's Carlyle. Still, we saw much that was beautiful, especially some of J. Maurice, Anton Maufe, Bollers and Bosbom. They paint chiefly in watercolour. Maurice had two exquisite little pictures one of his two children, and one of a girl asleep on a sofa, full of a lively and intimate charm. Two more good pictures were Clausen's Portrait of a Girl in Black, and Hornell's Children Gathering Snowdrops. There is some very good Corro there, and Lavery and Orchardson. Coming out of the gallery, on the steps above the level of Kelvin Grove Park, looking down the broad paths, on one side of which crept a slow river whose banks were buried in thick clumps of bushy trees. I felt that I was regarding not reality, but one of the Dutch pictures of Prince or Ostade, or Canaletto's canals and wide prospects in Italian cities. 
there seemed a kind of film in the air which gave to the scene the semblance of a painting already feeling the hand of time and separating it as by a pane of glass from the beholder rendering it remote and not a creation of the passing day in the background were high piled grey-white clouds above which an indeterminate milky blue intensified into a deep azure spires and towers sprang up behind the large solid blocks of building very dutch in character that skirted the confines of the park from where we stood the movement of the people up and down the paths was so little apparent that they helped rather than hindered the illusion of a picturesque unreality give them more colour in dress more generous splendour of gait and gesture and they would have satisfied prince or canaletto as we came down among them the illusion vanished and the town took back its power but still here and there presented itself a scene so essentially paintable that it received despite its momentary mutability and decay something of the eternal rest and life of an emotion set for all time in colour or words life is at times so gorgeous so full of beauties from the deafening blare of storm-crowned sunsets to the miniature daintinesses of a butterfly's wing and mankind contributes his share in the beauty of his body and the beauty of his art and song that i could lie down and cry that it should be thrown into a world so empty and planless i ought not to modify this determination to regard existence here as vanity indeed it supplies more evidence still for the contention it is but another clue of thread put into our hand in this minotaur's labyrinth promising to lead us out to realms of order and delight whereas from this maze there is no escape for living man the north sea affair friday june third nineteen sixteen the serious defeat of the fleet in the north sea as we believe it to be has produced little effect in most men who talked loudly of national honour and prestige they rushed to buy papers this morning in haste to find out what had happened laughed scornfully at the navy's anticlimax remarked that it was on the army and kitchener's army at that on which we had to depend and then they seemed to forget all about it the news or rather its confirmation brought c to a state of very bad temper which worked itself off in swearing at the orderly and then jokes in the hut it is in face of such a calamity so stunning in its sudden impact and forming such an ironic background to the dance of mankind that i am rejoiced at my sense of nothingness and utter lack of importance a special lecture thursday june sixteenth nineteen sixteen a lecture by a cavalry major who is a physical drill expert for his arrival we had to wear our little thin vests and bags instead of our shirts and trousers we had formerly given these in but they were brought out to-day the whole battalion was paraded at twelve and the major a small man with an incredibly evil countenance and a soft hat on one side a jaunty man and with an inability to pronounce his r's gave a lecture on physical drill and bayonet fighting points physical drill to be done in the trenches it often could be done even under shell-fire never let a man off punish him for all offences even the slightest his pals'll chip him and he'll pull together note total lack of comprehension of ordinary man's psychology 
in an army where all the ranks were criminals or seducers and the officers all bloody bullies the regiment could only be kept up like this nowadays such treatment engenders sheer hatred and makes men give the smallest they can without being caught treated like gentlemen they would give all they could story of officer whom nobody disobeyed twice someone disobeyed him once and he went to the hospital cheers this man babbled on about bayonet fighting and physical drill until twelve forty five the c o simpering by keeping a thousand men from their rest and their beer and teaching them nothing the case of n tuesday july fifth nineteen sixteen no longer allowed to smoke in lectures bitterly cold rainy and windy yet we had to stand about in small squads on the parade ground and do arm drill till seven forty five after brekker we went and did platoon drill then came in were stood in a hut and made to do arm drill by the c s m he insulted us all the time and cursed us as he always was doing just now for being unsteady worse than men he had known with a fortnight in the militia we did arm drill for forty minutes i remark here the case of n he had had an abscess in a top molar and had to go down to the dentist from him he had to get an estimate of the cost of treating the tooth the dentist presented an estimate of two and six for cleaning out the tooth and two and six for refilling it this estimate n gave in to the authorities at camp and received it back a week after the day he had first gone sick with the second two and sixpence crossed out i e the army were willing to pay the first but not the second this afternoon we again did platoon drill in the drizzly cold wind the c s m seems really mad he alternates between the most vicious martinetism and the most reckless affability as for instance this afternoon when he was unnecessarily rude to men on parade and then on the ground asked publicly for lozenges for his throat said he was very pleased with us and we must work together when we came out we were to make as good a show as he did and that wouldn't be very much he said we were to be the officers not him he would never be an officer cries of yes yes he told us that he with our help and we with his would finally make a good show as a company the c o was on parade and seems a fool cursed us and kept us standing in the rain to tell us to look into his eyes when we saluted him we were paraded for the usual five to six hour by c s m as for a lecture but he had made a mistake and there was none carrying coal friday july eighth nineteen sixteen the c s m getting more unpopular organized booze surge up from the ranks against him on parade they get louder and louder two men per hut were told off to fetch coal for officers mess in the afternoon and missed parade they will not let us off parade to do orderly work in the huts but don't mind our coming off to carry coal for them there were plenty of the staff who could have done it going sick saturday july ninth nineteen sixteen went sick headache etc c s m came in about seven and cursed me for still lying in bed and went up and shouted at one man who had been in bed two days quite poorly we were told to wake up stir up that he had to get up when he was ill did we think the doctor would come and see us there he c s m would go to the doctor as long as he could crawl to him we were men now not boys and we must pull ourselves together 
we should get up and begin to tidy up the hut. About twenty minutes after, he came in and cursed us all again. After Brecker, the sick paraded, and G was badly scolded for having us there late. Then we were told that perhaps we didn't know that days when we were sick were struck off our training and had to be completed at the end. Perhaps if we had known that, we should not have gone sick. Orders Monday, July 11th, 1916 A fine day with a cold wind. A parade of two companies before Brecker under the adjutant. He explains things noisily, clumsily, inefficiently and impatiently. A man gets too nervous to speak as soon as he comes out under his eye. Physical drill after Brecker. Several men scolded by instructor, acting under the orders of an officer, for coming out with cardigans on. They replied they had colds. They were told that didn't matter, that they knew what orders were, and were guilty of a crime in coming out improperly clothed. Men were to go sick if they had colds. A lot of men in A Company turned round and shouted, We aren't allowed to go sick with colds. That's orders too. The officer looked uncomfortable, blushed and was silent. The physical drill was very unpopular. We would be kept standing sometimes for a quarter of an hour in our lines waiting for the parade, in our short sleeves, with a cold, keen wind and sometimes a drizzling rain falling. Today, some of the men who had been sick yesterday, sixteen of B Company went sick that day, were still sick and reported so. The doctor complained of the number of malingerers in the battalion, and said the army method was to suppose a man was shamming until you found he was sick. Compare with this the explanation our doctor of the 16th Blankshire gave to C, who was turned down for a commission on account of a bad heart, and who asked for a discharge. You can't apply for a discharge. You will be kept as a private. You see, we have to be so much more particular about examining officers, because an officer, when he is sick, costs so much more. A Tommy, when sick, is either laughed or bullied down, or if it is too evident that he really is ill, a cheap way is found of dealing with him. We went for a route march this morning and sang songs. Among others, what shall we do with the sergeant major? On our return, before parading for a lecture, the CSM spoke at length on our unsatisfactoriness as a company, our unsteadiness, our uncleanliness, unsmartness, unsoldierlike qualities. We seemed to think we were in for a soft job. We weren't. We were to be treated just as soldiers and ought to set ourselves a higher standard. Unfortunately, we set ourselves a lower. He had known men with three weeks' training in the militia, men with a fortnight's training. Yes, he'd known men with a fortnight's training stand more steady than we men did, some of us with more than a year. We must get rid of the habits we had acquired in the field and try to be soldiers again. And finally, this was mentioned rather more nervously at the end, that some men in the front four ranks had been singing personal songs where names of NCOs were mentioned, that he had spoken to them of this, that we knew it was not allowed. We had all our military law books and hours for reading them up. Loud laughter and groans, which he was bound to take more or less lightly. Between A and B Company there was a football match this afternoon, and Captain R. said tentatively that it would be a good thing if those who had nothing special to do this afternoon went and watched it. Nobody found time hang heavy enough on his hands to do that. It was a half-holiday. One wonders how long Wednesdays will remain really free, 
how long before the mocking illusion of an afternoon's leisure being maintained we are forced to play or attend football matches. Some remarks about hospitals. Footnote. It is understood that the above criticisms are not applicable to the majority of military hospitals or to the more modern establishments. The writer came into contact with one of the old-fashioned army hospitals. Editor. We were isolated for measles. Operations in hospital were performed unnecessarily, e.g. C's varicose vein operation, which was futile. Use of enema before operations, brutal injections. Regulation quantity to be given to each man irrespective of his make or condition. Misery of patients during the operations. Lack of consideration shown to men about to undergo operations in the hearing of men already operated on near them, all bloody. Eyewash for inspections. Dying men made to sit up and ordered to smile. Doctor unsympathetic. Looked on everyone as a shirker, or in his words, scrimshanker. Hospital hopelessly understaffed in orderlies and nurses. Brutality in treatment of patients when they were unwilling to undergo a certain cure, e.g. electric battery. Man wounded and minus an arm fought the orderlies, insisted on not being put under electricity, was knocked down and held on the bed by two men. Lack of men to attend entailed much suffering to patients confined to bed, couldn't relieve themselves without bedpan and nobody to bring it. People nearly crying with pain. Gloom of building, dirty bathroom, taps, e.g., all loose and tied onto wall with string. Exercise ground for walks, etc., was merely a scraggy bit of field with no grass, bounded on one side by a high wall and on the other by a cemetery. Passes granted to patients to send to their friends, two people per man, case of man who came back from front on short leave and rushed straight from his train to the hospital to see his brother who was there. He was refused admission, having no pass. Meals never hot, much worse even than ordinary camp food, only servable at strictly regulated times, thus men from the trenches arriving late at night, wounded, wet and muddy, could be given no food because the next meal was not till brekker at eight in the morning. The nurses managed to heat up some cocoa left over from the last meal and gave them that. End of section two.